0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another great episode of Inside EMS. I am your host, Chris Sabolero, ready to bring you some great Inside EMS content. I just want to give you a reminder that the 7th Annual EMS Trend Report will provide expert analysis measuring the trends shaping the future of the profession. This year's survey seeks to explore the issues directly tied to provider recruitment and retention including physical and emotional safety factors and management support. Look for the link in the episode show notes, or you can visit ems1.com backslash 2022-trend-survey backslash. I am excited. I did my trend report, and here is the man that copied from me every step of the way. Kelly Grayson, KG, how are you doing this week?
1: Good man. Yeah, I copied your answers the the whole whole way across. Um, I didn't use crayon like you did, but, but uh, I use that. Um, it's uh, I I've been pimping the trend report myself because you know if, if we're going to be stewards of our profession, have some say in where it goes, our our opinions and our our attitudes need to be heard. Uh, it's it's pointless, impotently bitching uh, about conditions and and the way we feel about the state of EMS, uh, here's a way that we can weigh in on these issues in in such a fashion that that industry leaders and managers listen to it and follow it. So I encourage everybody to, to uh, take the EMS trend report survey uh, and make your opinions known.
0: Yeah, and I just want to mention, man, I think that we have a, a great audience, right? I mean, we talk yeah. about over... You know, over one hundred one point six million listens of our show over the past eight years, and there's a lot of people who are fans of the show. And if there's anything that we could ask, is is do this, do this for our profession, do this for our career field. You know, Kelly says it really well that if we're going to be stewards for our profession, and being stewards of our profession means that we have to leave it better than we found it. It's the EMS Trend Report that really kind of gives you the opportunity to be part of that change and to be part of that process of maybe what change is going to look like. So uh, go ahead and do the trend report. It doesn't take very long, and your voice matters. And then once that trend report comes out, we are going to conduct some shows. We're going to have some leaders on to discuss the findings of that trend report, and then kind of give some tips about how you, yes, you – can do something with that data inside your agency. And even if it doesn't represent the leadership that they're going to use the data, you as an EMS provider can have some of that opportunity to work with that data and kind of start your own understanding. I was talking to somebody yesterday, Kelly, Mm -hmm. and he was a new firefighter. I was talking about the community paramedic program that I'm working with uh, an insurance company on. And I said to them, I said, how long have you been in the fire service? And he's like, you know, just a few years. I've been here since 2015. And I said, so you're the leader of tomorrow then, right? So when you think about what the EMS system of tomorrow looks like, you've got to now learn as much as you can to be anticipatory that when you become a fire chief of the ex-fire department, you know, another five or 10 years down the road, that you're kind of making the changes that need to be made, but the changes start with you now. And when you think about this information that we get from the trend report, the, the people that are in the field, the EMS field right now, have to prepare themselves for a day when, if they're still around, that they're going to be the EMS chiefs, they're going to be the managers, they're going to be the supervisors within our career field. And then they're going to be able to reference the information that's happened in trend reports to say, I'm going to be part of this change. So I guess I'm babbling a little bit, but basically my point is, go ahead and fill out the trend report and let's see how the data can, can guide our career field in the future.
1: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's, you know, that that's one of the failings we have in EMS is, is uh, we, we so little consider the future. Uh, I think most of us in with the current state of the profession are so busy working, <laughs> worrying about our next patient, our next call, our next paycheck uh, that, that uh, uh, planning for the future is, uh, falls a distant, uh, uh, distant third or fourth. Uh, but uh, it's something we need to start doing and uh, this is the way to do it.
0: Hey, Kelly, let me ask you a question. Just as you said that, it was really kind of popped into my head where you said, you know, people in EMS don't consider the future. How much of that do you think is related to EMS being a stepping stone and not a career field that people just don't really feel invested? So they're not just going to be bothered with
1: stuff like that. Uh, it's a huge part of it. It's a huge part of it. And, and when you work, you um, Two or three jobs to make ends meet. Uh, it's difficult to to um, commit yourself to just one uh, and and your future, uh, you know, and plan for retirement at one. I'm guilty of that myself. Uh, I, I never expected to be at my with my employer uh, for as long as I have, and, and I'm happy there. But but it it became apparent a few years back that <laughs> dude, you've been here ten plus years. Uh, why are you not participating in their stock ownership? retirement program <laughs> so I'm um, I'm heavily contributing to that now because it you know uh, especially after the spinal surgery uh, you're staring your your field career retirement you know in, in the face and uh, I can't can't work on an ambulance forever so it's gonna have to come time for for my sunset career and prepare myself to you know run a run a a little ambulance service with potential one day or, or that sort of thing. And, and um, if you're not planning for that, it's never going to happen.
0: And that's the thing too, is that I think you bring up a really good point. I know this is not what we wanted to talk about today, but you're bringing up some really good points to say that regardless of where you are, And regardless of how long you plan to stay there, invest in your future. And, you know, if you want to be a firefighter and you're working for a standalone EMS agency, or if you want to go to nursing school, or if you want to go to medical school and there's a 401k where you are, that money just follows you, right? You're investing in your future. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I'll tell this story because when I was in the military, I had the opportunity to test. I was probably about 23 years old. Um, My son was just born. So this is about 1989 ish. And uh, in the air force, I had the opportunity to take a battery of tests for different things. They had different programs. And one of the things that I was qualified to do was to go to uh, medical school and the air force was going to pay for it all. But here was the caveat. So I would have been promoted to a specific rank, E-5 staff sergeant. I would have had to go to medical school. I would have had to go to residency. I could have picked what I wanted. I think it was like three or five choices. But the Air Force, needs of the Air Force came first, of course. So they would pick my ultimate residency. So residency for four or five years, whatever that was. And then when I was done, I owed the Air Force 10 years. Yeah. So that was 18 years. I was 23. I was like, man, I don't want to be in school for all that time. And then I've got to give the Air Force 10 years. You know, I'm 23 years old. So I'm like, I'm going to be 41 years old. Well, you know what? I didn't do it because I couldn't see the forest for the trees. I didn't want to give up eight years to go to school. I didn't want to give up 10 years of being in the military. That would have made me 41 years old. I'm 56 years old today. I could have been retired at 30 years. I went in the Air Force when I was 19. I could have been retired at 30 years, which would have made me 49 years old. I'm still 56 years old. So it makes no difference how old you are now, but you're going to be this old later on you're going to be 50 yeah. years old 60 years old down the road you need to start taking care of yourself at every single juncture and you bring up a good point kelly that you you know you kind of put 10 years in before you realize hey i should be investing in myself mm-hmm. um, but anyway we're just kind of babbling now. i know i'm bad you're just listening i had almost
1: exactly the same experience the town that i currently work in as a medic uh the mayor and the city council that town were willing to send me uh, back to college and underwrite my education and pay for my medical school if I would come back after after residency and hang up a shingle and staff their ER and set up a practice in their town, the same as they did for a good friend and, and mentor of mine. And I turned them down. Uh, and, and that was one of the stupidest mistakes I ever made. I had just married and was, was you know, working on, on, on building a life and, and I didn't see... Uh, being just married and spending, you know, 12 plus more years in school. And uh, stupid, stupid now. (laughs) I look back on it and go, uh, at my age now, uh, 40 things young,
0: so right, we're gonna be we're gonna be fifty anyway, so we might as well do it the yeah. right way. But anyway, that's let's go ahead and transition because that's not what we're here to talk about. But one of the things that we did start off with, Kelly, was talking about the trend report and yeah. the changes that need to happen in our career field. And one of the things that happened this week on February fourteenth, Valentine's Day, is there's, there was a joint statement on lights and sirens use and vehicle operations that came from thirteen agencies and those agencies really are represented across the EMS spectrum and some of those agencies was the Academy of International Mobile Healthcare Integration the American Ambulance Association the American College of e- Emergency Physicians the Center for Patient Safety the National Association of Emergency Medical Technicians National Association of EMS Physicians International Association of Fire Chiefs International Association of EMS I and mean, we could just go on there's 13 agencies here and mm-hmm. first off I want to Applaud All the agencies of getting together and really coming up with a position statement on anything, right? Because it seems that just because NAMT says this and the National EMS Management Association says this, in our time, we've seen that there hasn't been a lot of consensus on these things. So for 13 different agencies to get together on a topic and put their name on something that says, this is the way it should be. And this is the way we should all move to, Kelly, even before we talk about the topic of the use of lights and sirens, we have to applaud all these agencies for coming to the table and saying
1: we're unified on this topic. Indeed, indeed. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's all too rarely that we find uh, such a unified voice and, and consensus among industry experts and, and thought leaders. Uh, and I think this is a testament to how serious a problem this is in our profession, that we're all pretty much on the same page as, as to how to move forward with it. What what is distressing to me, Chris, is is the disconnect between uh, our management and, and our industry leaders and rank and file EMTs and paramedics that uh, that are subject to to policies made uh, um Based on 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 this uh, joint statement, Uh, I can't believe the amount of pushback I saw on social media and and, you know, people like clearly these people never worked on an ambulance and, and have no clue of who they're talking about what they're talking about uh and 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 the the street cred and the and the education and experience that most of these authors uh bring to the table uh but it's it was nothing more than a demonstration of, of why the comment section in social media is the most isolated spaceport of critical thinking you know a wretched hive of scum and villainy where you need to be cautious <laughs> you know, so you know, it, is, it was horrible man yeah but in this article,
0: it really kind of lays out a great, uh, you know, a great template for what we need to think about. And they they don't tell you that, uh, you know, they give you suggestions about how we should move forward, but it lays out the plan. You know, the first couple paragraphs really kind of lay out the challenge. You know, in 2009, it talks about that there were 1,500 ambulance crashes. You know, it talks about from 1996 to 2012, there were 137 civilian uh, fatalities and 228 civilian injuries as resulting from fire service vehicles uh, and in, you know those types of incidents. 64 civilian fatalities and 217 civilian injuries when it comes to ambulance incidents. And when we think about this, we really have to now start to consider, are we doing the right thing? If our job, if our charge is taking care of people on what could be the worst day of their life, You know, you and I, Kelly, have talked about the peers that we're losing uh, because they're traveling lights and sirens or because they've been in an ambulance, you know, too long without rest. And, uh, you know, it even talks about traffic related injuries and fatalities. And they even put something in here, which was interesting, where they're calling the wake effect in quotation marks, which is collisions that have happened as a result mm-hmm. of an ambulance or an apparatus going lights and sirens, but it didn't involve the emergency vehicle at all. So they're now yeah. starting to track a lot of information, Kelly, that we've just supposed over the years was happening. And here it is in black and white to say, you know what? We may be causing a little bit more damage than we think we are.
1: Yeah. You know, and and my my buddy, Gary Safford, the EMS artifact uh, blogger, has said for, for years that, uh, EMS could increase its safety, uh, could grow its safety culture and reduce or almost eliminate the line of duty death rate in EMS by doing one thing. Stop driving like an idiot. That That's it. You know, most of our our, our problems uh, and our, our risks to our safety occur in, in vehicle accidents. And if we stopped uh, reflexively driving lights and sirens uh, to every call and transporting lights and sirens for for reasons as dubious as, as just getting back into service quicker, uh, we would we would be a much safer profession, and our line of duty death rate would pale in comparison to to police officers and firefighters. Uh, but unfortunately, we have a lot of people that that are responsible for driving emergently who still believe in the efficacy of the practice, right. and and that's something that we we kind of need to get away from. And and this Position paper. This joint statement, Chris, is is the first step on that. If you recognize a problem uh, in your industry, at first you need to examine and and frame the argument uh, before you can start experimenting and studying. You know, we, we don't. We've talked in in this podcast in the past about how little data we have on on how much our response times matter. And we have very few of them that, that show uh, a particular response time is optimum for any particular type of, of emergency. Uh, and, and what we do shows that the response times that really matter are the ones that we can't attain anyway. So uh, we have to first, you know, state this problem before we can start measuring it and and coming up with realistic solutions on on uh, what needs an emergency response and and what doesn't and they outline the principles right here that are a good way forward if we would just take the time to read this document and and examine our own practice with the eye toward changing in the future
0: Right. So in the the second part of this document, you know, they talk about, you know, they kind of laid out the problem and the problem was all these fatalities and all these accidents and all these, you know, civilians that are affected, but they really kind of go a little bit deeper when they talk about, you know, it actually starts on page two where now they start to talk about, well, what about traveling lights and sirens? We've got to be hurting people, right? That if we're not getting to the hospital as quick as we can, but only 6.9% were making a difference in potentially life-saving interventions, Kelly. And one of the things that was really interesting is that there are agencies, of course, that have reduced their lights and sirens usage. And during those response times, 20 to 33% of those agencies are showing that they've taken care of those patients without any discernible Mm -hmm. harmful effects to patient outcome. So now what you're saying is here's the problem. And these are the numbers of the challenges that we're causing. Oh, by the way, when some of these agencies have uh, curtailed their response, you know, 20 to 33% of these agencies are saying, you know what, we're not hurting people because we're not going lights and sirens.
1: Yeah, the, the 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 same thing that that uh, happened when we curtailed our spinal motion uh, restriction and spinal mobilization uh, practice, uh, the world did not end. Uh, nothing changed, but for the better. You wound up with safer EMS agencies uh, and, and less risk to providers and the public, and patient outcomes were not harmed. You know, Chris. It's widely known that about 70% of the patients we transport in ambulances don't need ambulances. So therefore, that 70% of those people that don't need ambulances uh, right there don't need the speed and response benefit of a lights and siren response, period. Now, the other 30%, we can start examining those, and it turns out that most of those don't need Lights and siren response. And, you know, I, you've heard me joke and say that, you know, many of them can can get by with the cable installer response. Sometime next Tuesday between noon and 5 p.m. Uh, will show up, look for us. But, uh, you know, that's hyperbole, but it illustrates the problem very well. I, my personal metric for responding or, trans, or, excuse me, for transporting lights and sirens, my personal metric has always been uh, three things. The patient has to have a time-sensitive emergency where quicker treatment would would benefit the patient. Number two, that treatment has to be something that I cannot provide and the emergency department can. And and those, those two things determine whether I drive lights and sirens or not. Or I have my partner transport lights and sirens or not, and that's a rare instance indeed. I've discovered that the better I do my job, the less exciting it is. And uh, a lot of people in the MSD need to need to come to that realization as well. That most of our patients, uh, the scientific data shows that we don't make that big a difference for uh, patient outcomes when we transport lights and sirens, and we make zero difference for patient outcomes when we're when the reason we're transporting lights and sirens is to get back into service quicker or we're transporting or we're moving lights and sirens from one district to another to uh, to be there to to cover the next potential theoretical call. Uh, That's that's risky and dangerous. And that's a a practice we need to stop immediately.
0: You know, and when we start to think about this from the standpoint, you know, because you and I last week, Kelly, we talked about how we need to change, you know, the EMS system design and what yeah. that may look like i think this starts with this lights and sirens thing because you know when when ems agencies were saying eight minutes and 59 seconds and then we were doing you know uh, uh you know priority dispatch to uh you know for a priority one call a life-threatening call um we, we were just having to get there as fast as we could there mm-hmm. were some agencies especially this week north carolina is talking about Uh, now using nurse triage to make the determination of how we need to get to these calls. So I do think that this position paper is going to change. Let's talk about some of the sponsoring organizations of this statement. They gave some recommendations of how lights and sirens should be used during an emergency response. And remember, this is fire. This is EMS. This is the Safety Council. This is rural EMS. You know this also even includes the paramedic Chiefs of Canada Kelly so this just mm-hmm. this isn't here in the United States so this is a you know an international challenge no right
1: consensus, yeah
0: exactly so a couple I'm gonna read just a couple of these there's you know there's there's about 10 bullets and suggestions that they make I'm just gonna read a couple of them give you the overview okay. of a couple but I encourage you to go, go ahead and pull this down and, and come up with your own theories on this right I mean just because they're here and they're saying this is the right thing to do uh, we have to take this into account and say you know what this is the right thing to do. Or as you mentioned, those keyboard terrorists, were kind of shooting it down because we don't work yeah. in the EMS field, right? Um, you know, communication centers should use EMD programs developed to maintain and approve by national standards set in organizations with structured call triage and call categorization. That's number one. Responding agencies should use response-based EMD categories and other local policies to to further identify and operationalize the situations where lights and sirens transport are criti- clinic are clinically justified. So what they're saying is, let's not go away from this forever, but let's be a little bit more diligent in mm-hmm. what we're going to use. Another one is emergency response agency leadership should include physician medical oversight and QA personnel to monitor the rates of use. Is it appropriate? Did they use the EMD protocols for compliance? What were the medical outcomes? And I think from this, we're able to kind of see how we're going to move forward. You know, Kelly, you talked about your can, you know, your kind of conditions for where you will run lights and mm-hmm. sirens. I bet you that came with experience. I bet you weren't doing that from the very beginning, right? Oh, so no, I and was I'll let a, you I
1: was a I was an adrenaline junkie
0: like anybody else. But what Uh, I'm but what I'm saying is, you know, they're talking about here, let's use the data to mm -hmm. determine how we go lights and sirens. Basically, what you did, and to be honest with you, what I did, because I was the same type of paramedic, was you know, if there's anything I can't do in the back of that ambulance, I need to get them to the hospital quicker. We need to be able to use the data that we get to make the determination of how we run these ambulances. Just like you use the data of your experience to say, I don't need to run this lights and sirens. Yeah. Just like I use the data in my experience to say, I don't need to run this lights and sirens. This is the missing component I feel.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and, and this lays the framework for, for making measurable and quantifiable uh, what our experience told us. You know, we, we didn't have data. We had anecdote. Uh, but if you have enough anecdote, then you can see a trend there and start to actually gather and quantify data. And that's what needs to be done. And and before we close, the, the thing that really sticks out to me here is one of the bullet points. that says municipal government leaders should be aware of the increased risk of crashes associated with lights and siren response to the public and service agreements with EMS agencies can mitigate this risk by using tiered response time expectations based on EMD categorization of calls and the quality care metrics should be what drives these rather than time metrics and man that is a that is a corner we painted in there, uh, ourselves into over the years with with how we educated the public and and municipal leaders uh and and we realize now that we have built a house of cards that's about to fall down. We can't meet these response time standards. Our entire uh, uh, response model is built around putting enough units on the street to meet these unattainable and arbitrary standards. And we finally recognize with that one bullet point that uh, we have created this monster and it's up to us to start educating municipal leaders uh, to To come up with or to to hold us to realistic and attainable standards that matter not just arbitrary eight minutes and 59 seconds so that's what we think we'd like to hear what you think have you read the joint statement on red lights and sirens transport if not why haven't you read it and if you have let us know what you think of it what your position is on lights and sirens response in ems For myself and co-host Chris Civilaro, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, and we'll catch you guys next week.